the purpose of the book is to get young entrepreneurs to think about private equity, venture capital, funding, because once you take that bite of the apple, I can tell you by the time you take that second bite of the apple, the game changes. And pretty soon you're working for them. You know, you might have had this dream um, and you might have um, a calling or a cause. And that's one of the things that we'd like to inspire people to say, if you've got a cause like we had, then maybe you need to think about doing this a different way and not rush to, you know, private equity and venture capital because um, they're good at basically tying you up with contracts. And every time you take another bite and you get some more funding, it gets uh, really Usually after the second bite of the apple, you are a minority owner of your own company. Jeremy Godaskis is a social impact consultant with over 22 years of experience spanning higher education, business, and nonprofit organizations. He supports large global companies and growing social enterprises, including ROW Global Health, where he serves as a director of philanthropy. Prior to consulting, Godowskis spent 17 years in higher education advancing the field of social entrepreneurship, both inside and outside the classroom. He launched the Center for Social Impact at North Central College and taught courses in social innovation, design thinking, and impact measurement. He's active in the community, serving as a startup mentor for University of Chicago's Polsky Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and the chair of the Corporate Social Responsibility Committee for the Neighborville Area Chamber of Commerce. Scott Boyer is the founder and president of OWP Pharmaceuticals and the board chair of ROW Global Health, which together form a hybrid social enterprise that is transforming the lives of people with epilepsy and associated psychiatric disorders in over 30 under-resourced countries around the world. Scott spent more than 25 years in Big Pharma, leading sales and marketing efforts for the likes of Abbott and Bristol-Myers Squibb before having the vision for a pharmaceutical social enterprise. In 2014, OWP and Roe were launched to address the global lack of access to life-changing treatment and have already contributed over $21 million for a medication, diagnosis, and training around the world, including grants for over 160,000 prescription months of medication. Together, Scott and Jeremy wrote the book, Powering Social Enterprise with Profit and Purpose, The Tandem Hybrid. So along with the story of OWP and Roe working together, we brought them on to talk a little bit more about the book. Welcome, Scott and Jeremy. Well, Scott and Jeremy, welcome to the Social Enterprise Alliance podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, David. Lauren, thanks for having us on. Yeah, we're so glad to be uh, having a conversation with you all today. Yeah, and especially you guys just released a book. So we really want to dive in and talk about that and how you wrote about social enterprise and kind of your perspectives from this model. So why don't we begin there and just tell us a little bit of, of that story and, and what led you to write this book? 
Cool. I'll mention the book and then maybe Scott can give some of his backstory, which really led to the book and the model uh, that's featured in the book. Um, but yeah, the book is called Powering Social Enterprise with Profit and Purpose, The Tandem Hybrid. Um, and it's published by Rutledge in the academic market. And uh, really, it came out of um, Scott's background uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which led him to start a social enterprise, um, what, about seven or eight years ago? that he can tell you about, but uh, we're excited to, to share the model, which is a hybrid model uh, combining a for-profit and non-profit organization together uh, for social impact. So Scott, you want to talk about the background and what led to the, to the book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I am kind of a traditional big pharma guy, kind of born and bred out of, uh, you know, shortly out of college, started with Abbott Laboratories and then Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, combined about 26 years of experience. Um, and, um, you know, mainly on the sales side, marketing side. And it kind of, I guess, got to the point, I have two children, and um, I got to the point where they were both in college or getting out of college, and I was just kind of, uh, I was thinking about, is this why I was put on this earth? Is to just kind of stay in, in big pharma, kick the can down the road, so to speak, to retirement. And um, one of the things that uh, along the way I learned a lot about uh, the you know, 200 countries and the markets that are focused on by big pharma, of which is really just 20 or 25 countries that are more the wealthy countries with healthcare systems. And the rest of the world kind of sits on the sideline. And that is uh, kind of what drove me. You know, I was like, going, I wonder if we could create some sort of a model that would, uh, you know, become profitable because you do have to make money in order to have social impact. And then have um, provide medication um, around the world to people that don't have access to it, and so that was the crux of it. I, you know, I looked at companies like Hershey, uh, which has a big foundation, Hormel, Novodor Disk, um, also Lundbeck, or a couple of pharmaceutical companies uh, based in Europe that have big foundations. But um, the goal always was to create a profitable for-profit company and then have a not-for-profit that's tied, that's funded through the profits. Our goal is to get approximately 50% of our um, profits into ROW um, so they can do their work around the world. And um, we've done a lot of good things as a small company. We've got uh, um, a couple drugs in the FDA right now when those hit kind of at the end of 2024, beginning of 2025, things are gonna change quite quickly then. But it's been a long haul, I will say. It's been a long haul to get to this point. Um, but we've got, uh, Jeremy can tell you more about the projects we have all going on around the world. But we do have an IP holding company that's set up. And so royalties are paid to ROW to do their good work. And as we become have more sales and become more profitable, they will become much bigger over time. They do a, a lot of work already. Uh, primarily focused in neuroscience with epilepsy and um, our future drugs, also schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety, et cetera. But um, our primary focus right now is in epilepsy and uh, we sell medications in neuroscience in the United States and we donate uh, medications in neuroscience around the world. Um, so that gives you a little background, but it was, um, I guess the compelling thing was that, you know, had a successful career and it was like, uh, I, I think one of the key questions I always ask people that come here and, you know, we've got, you know, 18 employees right now is that how much is enough? And uh, 
for people who've been successful is uh, I, I think you need to ask you that question to yourself. And when you reach that number, you know, our focus is really on how to give back to people in low and middle income countries around the world. And uh, with that, maybe, Jeremy, you can tell a little bit about the work that's going on with ROW. Sure. Yeah. Scott was alluding to, um, you know, when he was in pharma, he'd look at those sales charts in the, the couple hundred countries on the far right side with the smallest um, piece of the pie were labeled ROW. And that's that's why uh, Scott chose to, to name the, the foundation and the not-for-profit ROW, which stands for Rest of World. So that's the that's the goal. And, and the epilepsy focus, I think, as a, as a first goal is because of the, the huge treatment gap. I think there are 65 million people in the world with epilepsy. Um, 52 million of those are in low and middle income countries and about 80% of those don't get treated. So there's 39 million people um, that suffer from a very treatable condition. Uh, 70% of folks who get medication have their lives completely turned around for the good. Um, they can get a job, they can work, uh, or they can get an education, uh, they can get married, they can have kids, all the things that... Um, uh, they can't do uh, because of the stigma and discrimination that happens uh, in some of these countries uh, because it's it's really misunderstood. Um, they think it's contagious or even worse, uh, demon possession. And so a lot of the work that, that ROW does is around education, diagnosis, and treatment uh, in all of these countries that we're working in. So right now, I think Scott alluded to, we've got projects um, in about uh, about 75 or more projects in 35 uh, countries around the world um, and have already granted uh, over $21 million in medication and uh, about a, what we consider about 170,000 prescription months of medication. So, uh, and really we're just getting started. So it's exciting to see what, what this model is already doing. And to Scott's point, the scale that will happen when uh, even more funding comes through uh, the success of the business um, is really, really incredible. Yeah. Well, and it's to me, I think a little bit shocking. Like, honestly, when you hear big pharma, the first images and thoughts that come to my mind are companies that are maybe somehow taking advantage of people. Um, and I have really wrestled with this like paradox because are you on one hand, you know, and, and I'm sure there are plenty of examples of bad stories where maybe that is true, but there's also the reality that, uh, medicines are being made to help uh, people's lives. So, you know, it's like, it's almost like the conversation is at a deeper level is this tension between what is profitable, what is okay to be profitable, where do the profits go after that? And uh, it sounds like within this paradox, you guys are trying to fundamentally think through um, different perspectives as well. And yet, all with that to say, like, at the core of what big pharma companies do is ultimately impact uh, people's lives through medicine and research. Yeah. And, you know, I've been in big pharma my whole life and uh, now I'm in small pharma, but basically, you know, you set up um, patents and exclusivity and you use that in 20 to 25 countries uh, to maximize those products. But the other 175 countries, like Jeremy mentioned, ROW, that's usually like one or 2% of the sales of those products. And that's the majority of the countries. Yeah. And that's when you look at that and you go, wow, how, how, how is this even possible? There are more people in that little, uh, you know, 2% than there is in everything else added together, kind of multiplied by a number. So the system set up to provide exclusivity, to maximize profits, 
and unfortunately it keeps all these people on the sideline. And the drugs we are giving away are uh, mainly generic tablets. We can make them relatively inexpensively. But even those generic, when they go generic, uh, and they are inexpensive, and you think, oh, here you are in the United States, you go to Walgreens or CVS or independent pharmacy, and it's 20 bucks a month or something like that. And you think, okay, they're probably affordable everywhere in the world. Not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, not the case. Um, so um, us providing medications, and we're not selling these drugs and these medications. We're gifting them through the not-for-profit to another not-for-profit, either clinic or hospital, to help people with um, epilepsy and like um Jeremy said, it is life-changing. Yeah. I mean, we're talking in a couple of weeks, you don't have seizures or you have so few seizures, you can go and live a normal life. And uh, here in America, you guys understand that epilepsy is kind of a misfiring of the brain. That's not the case in you know countries in Africa and Latin America. Well, and that's where it would be, even before talking about the book, you have me very intrigued about uh, the idea that a pharmaceutical company is a social enterprise. Oh, well, tell me more about that. Like, so we've we've unpacked that story. So specifically, does the story of OWP then begin with this social enterprise kind of foundation? It, it does. I mean, without ROW, there will be there would be no OWP um, because they're both started at the same time. And um, you know, I was working at Bristol and had a good career. I left I left Big Pharma, which is pretty unusual at that stage. Um, and basically, uh, um, you know, it was built with this philanthropy in mind. And, and David, you mentioned, uh, you know, this social enterprise. Our tagline for OWP is the pharmaceutical social enterprise. Because uh, when we talk to physicians, they see the pharmaceutical social enterprise, they go, whoa, I don't really associate pharma with social enterprise. So explain more. Um, so that's our tagline to basically make people kind of go, oh, um, I don't think I've ever thought that or heard that. Then it leads into a discussion about uh, what we're trying to accomplish around the world through ROW. Yeah, that's awesome. It really is amazing to hear about just the revolutionary aspect of of this work, that this is uh, just kind of a industry that hasn't been touched much by the concept of social enterprise. So to see the work that y'all are doing within that industry, it's it's really inspiring. I'm curious to also hear more about the the structure of the, you know, the foundation and OWP, how those two work together and uh, you know, what does a hybrid social enterprise look like? How is it different than typical social enterprises and how did you all decide that it was the right structure for what you wanted to do? Yeah, and um, Lauren, that's a great question. And I know you were a social entrepreneurship major, I believe. Um, that's when you were right. In yeah. And so um, the book is supposed to be um, a book for you know professors at colleges and, and Rutledge, and uh, you know is a book uh, publisher that's focused on colleges and universities to try to get this concept out there about social capitalism. So. Um, we have an IP holding company that we put all of our intellectual property in and it is jointly owned by ROW and OWP. And that allows for royalties to flow through, you know, OWP sells product um, and that goes uh, in a percentage of it goes into this IP hold company and then royalties flow through to ROW. Um, and the reason why I think it's important to get this book out there to young entrepreneurs is that we were bootstrapping a lot here 
and we were, uh, you know, at a position in our life where we could do this. Um, you know, it's a lot more difficult if you're 24 years old and just out of college and you're trying to pay bills and, and all those certain things that uh, come with, uh, you know, life. But we had no private equity and no venture capital. And that is a big deal because once you go down that path of private equity and venture capital, the company usually doesn't become your own. Um, we had numerous discussions with VCs that told us, hey, um, we would write you a big check, but you need to set ROW aside and you can do this later. Do what most normal people do and go make a bucket full of money and then start a private foundation and then go do your row work. But this wow. world is just going to gum things up. You know, Dang. as far as selling the company, uh, it's everybody's going to go, what's row? And so we said, well, you got to keep in mind the purpose of these two organizations was to get row funded. So if you're telling me we can't do it, you can't give us any funding unless we eliminate row. I'm we're like, oh, well, that's the reason we did this. Right. Um, and so the answer was no. So we were funded mainly by individual investors, some family offices, you know, and smaller investors. And we do have products that, that we're now selling. Um, and that's the way we've been able to get so far. We've had a couple of delays in new products. Uh, otherwise, honestly, we'd be we're a couple of years behind where I thought we would be at this time. But things are things are lining up really well for um, future launches, which will change the dynamics to the company. But the purpose of the book is to get young entrepreneurs to think about private equity, venture capital, funding, because once you take that bite of the apple, I can tell you by the time you take that second bite of the apple, the game changes. And pretty soon you're working for them. You're not working, you know, you might have had this dream um, and you might have um, a calling or a cause. And that's one of the things that we'd like to inspire people to say, if you've got a cause like we had, then um, maybe you need to think about doing this a different way um, and not rush to, you know, private equity and venture capital because um, they're good at basically tying you up with contracts. And every time you take another bite and you get some more funding, it gets uh, really usually after the second bite of the apple, you are a minority owner of your own company. There's lots and lots of uh, articles out there about founders ending up with three, four, five percent of the company by the time everything's said and done. And we wanted we didn't want that to happen. And some of the companies that I mentioned, Lundbeck, Novanordis, Hershey, those are, you know, those are companies that uh, started foundations honestly 70, 80, 90, 100 years ago. And that's the sort of uh, um, longevity we'd like. We want this to go forward in perpetuity. Um, and that means you have to run a successful for-profit company and be innovative, come out with new ideas. It does mean you have to do that, but Hershey's been able to do that. Lundbeck's been able to do that. Nova Nordisk has been able to do that. So um, there are um, ways to get it done, but this is definitely uh, a small percentage of the business structures that you're going to see out there. It's a small, small number. I'll, I'll add to that just because, um, you know, Scott mentioned higher education and the academic market. I, I spent 17 years uh, in higher education and 10 years, the last 10, uh, among other things, teaching social entrepreneurship. And um, one of the gaps I noticed in 
in books and textbooks and literature was really in-depth analysis of these hybrid social enterprises, right? We'd, we'd talk about um, for-profit models and non-profit models, and then there'd be usually a paragraph or a page or a small section about hybrid models. So it was really interesting to me to to use the OWP and Row model as a as an example um, and really a blueprint for for a model that other people could could try to replicate. Uh, as as you both know, there's you know all all shapes and sizes and forms for social enterprises, right? And so we we go through those in the book. We talk about uh, the benefits of for profit models, the benefits of non profit models, but also each of their limitations, uh, even the the ones that are designed now to uh, protect. Uh, social impact uh, in a for-profit company like a benefit corporation, which is great, or a L3C or the new benefit LLCs. Um, but we also go more in depth on what are those combination structures look like in hybrid models where you've got either a nonprofit with a for-profit subsidiary or a for-profit with a nonprofit partner, which is a kind of a version of what, of what we're doing. Uh, but when, then we just kind of explode it and, and go in depth on the, on the model that, that OWP and Roe are finding really successful. So um, I think that's one, one of the things that this, this book offers is kind of a more in-depth look at, at organizations that want to maximize their social impact through uh, a profit engine and how to really utilize uh, nonprofits and for-profits in the ways that they were created instead of trying to kind of force fit something that doesn't really uh, always lend itself to, to success. So there's a lot of great examples of organizations doing that, um, but we said, why not take uh, each entity as it was designed, link them together much in the same way that Patagonia has done, if you saw the announcement that came out recently, they're doing it a little bit of a different way, but same idea is to is to keep the mission locked in for perpetuity, like Scott said, and, and have the funding fuel the mission uh, for the long term. Yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, the mission lock, that is actually one of the key components of being a social enterprise, like in our view. And, you know, when you talk to uh, companies that do certification or procurement, that mission lock piece is a really important part of defining what makes a social enterprise. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I was curious about too. Like, you know, you, you hear about mission drift in, you know, entrepreneurship courses and, and all of that. And it's obvious that y'all have been very focused from the beginning, you know, when it comes to your funding, there was, there was never any ambiguity of, uh, you know, what, what, your mission was. It was always the rest of the world and reaching them with these medications. So my question is, you know, when you have kind of these two halves that make the social enterprise run and make it successful, how do you kind of balance, you know, the responsibilities of it? Like, how do you balance the the work that it takes to run a successful for-profit organization with, you know, the core mission of the social enterprise? I'll take the for-profit first, and then uh, Jeremy can talk about the not-for-profit. But I, um, there's no ambiguity uh, for myself. Um, I am a commercial pharma guy. That is who I am. That was my DNA. You know, I basically took my vocation uh, for 26 years that made it kind of my mission. Um, so my focus is OWP. 90% of the time, I am on the board of uh, Roe Global Health. There's actually a, a private foundation and a public charity because Roe does get donations from people that have a heart for epilepsy. And we have both the private uh, and the public because some people can only donate uh, through a DAP to a public corporation or public charity. But my focus is on um, OWP and getting this pipeline built out 
which is really the large degree what I did when I was uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so I'm I'm still kind of doing what I did before. Obviously, it was built to fund ROW, and it's got some you know crazy successful programs going on around the world, and we get you know letters, videos, all sorts of things all the time from people that uh, thank us for what we're doing. You know, the one thing that definitely from a heart strings perspective when we started this was that, you know, if uh, if we were in, you know, Africa or Latin America, right now, the number one drug for epilepsy, really number one and number two drug for epilepsy in the United States are both generic and they have tablets and they're inexpensive, cost 20, let's say 20 cents a day to, to manufacture and we're giving those away. But to be in those countries right now and have a, a child that has epilepsy and um, knowing uh, and they may or may not know, but that there's a drug that could basically make their life normal 70% of the time and them not get that drug. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, pharmaceutical medical injustice. So that's what we're, our goal is to basically get these medications through our not-for-profit to a not-for-profit that's local. So you can unleash the human potential of these, uh, Sometimes they're, they're adults. They might have had seizures for 10 years. And we show up and two weeks later, they're like, oh, I have no more seizures. And people are just like, whoa, I mean, now I can go get a job. I don't have to have my um, a caregiver, like my mother, who's watching out for me all the time. Because if you have a, a seizure, unfortunately, in the wrong place, in the right, the wrong time, you know, in a low-income country, probably the best thing to get, that's going to happen is you just get robbed. There are a lot of other bad things that can happen, you know, when you're having seizures, including, you know, people are killed because they people think that they're possessed. So, you know, my focus is OWP to make sure we get the medications and get this uh, pipeline of products to pay for the medications to ROW. And Jeremy, you can talk more about the work that ROW is doing around the world. Yeah, I think uh, there's benefits and, and challenges of, of of the structure, but I think the the benefits are you can you can have people with expertise and skills and background and education in either uh, for profit world or non profit world who can find their niche in in this mission, right? So on the non profit side for Roe Global Health and Roe Foundation, we've got a team of of great experts who have years of experience in in non profit world. So they can take uh, what OWP is providing in support and really maximize the use uh, in terms of where the money goes and how it's how it's used um, and the impact that's had. So, we, you know, you mentioned mission drift. I think that is a lot of times the challenge of a single entity that is either too focused on the profit and then they, they can't fulfill their mission or they're too focused on the mission and then they forget about to the profit generation that's needed to happen. We use that as an analogy in the book. Um, you know, we talk about this tandem hybrid model. You think about a tandem bike um, and how they're connected, structurally connected. We talk about mission draft instead of mission drift, which is really because they're connected. Um, you think in a bike race, you know, when they're two separate bikes, um, you draft off the one in front of you and you benefit from their them taking the lead and kind of cutting through the the difficulty. Um, when you're linked and you're you're moving together, that's even better. And so we talk about the 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 benefit of being linked as a as a nonprofit and for profit. It's just you you drive together and you can go that much farther and that much faster um, in terms of this 
this model. Again, not to say there's anything wrong with all the other models. We talk about their benefits as well in the book, but um, this one in terms of scale um, and what it can do um, is pretty powerful. It definitely seems like there are a lot of roadblocks in some of these more traditional non-hybrid models of doing business um, that the hybrid seems to really be able to to address creatively, which is really, really cool. Yeah. So with that, like, I think the question now I have is what questions should people be asking? So if I'm starting a brand new social enterprise and I'm thinking about the different structures, for-profit, non-profit, or this new hybrid model, is there like a series of uh, key questions that I should be thinking through that would help me kind of identify which path is best? Yeah, we do. We do address that throughout uh, the book. And I think there's, you know, certain questions that that any entrepreneur is going to be asking when they think about structuring, right? So how are you going to attract funding? Uh, What are tax implications that you do or do not want to have? What transparency is going to be required for you and the organization? Um, What governance uh, model is important for you? Um, so I think all of those questions uh, and really, how, but the, the ultimate one, I think, Scott, you'd say, like, how do I maximize the mission uh, and the impact that I want to have? What structure is going to help me achieve the mission at scale to help the most people um, possible? And that's the structure that you, that you want to go with. Um, in some models, I think uh, that the traditional structures can get you there, um, but sometimes they can't. And I think that's why we want this one to be kind of on the table as people think about them. Yeah. And you know, this kind of um, using capitalism as a social engine. Um, we want people to think about this um, when they're starting their company, starting their enterprise, because if they don't, the, the world the world will move you in the other direction. And let's face it, we're not talking about, um, you know, still 99% of the business out there are going to be structured kind of normal. You know, uh, uh, these were very, very unusual in the way we structure this, structure this business. But if you've got a cause and you've got a calling um, um, and you want to make a long-term impact, then you're going to have to think at the beginning on who you're taking money from. Because if you don't think about that, then those decisions will be made for you eventually. So it's important for you to really map out what you're trying to accomplish. And one thing I, you know, I've talked to some people that are like serial entrepreneurs, and for those, I'm like, okay, you've already done this once or twice, and it's worked out really well. Um, okay, you, you, you probably have a fair amount of money in the bank. So why not consider this where your end goal is not just to make a bigger pot of gold? And that's why, you know, I always ask people, I said, hey, what's your number? If you get to a certain amount, why not think about social impact or social good? Because, you know, just making more money isn't going to make you generally it doesn't make you happier the more you have so i'm telling you right now i i wouldn't change the last you know five years you know five six years with owt and the impact we're having around the world the thousands of patients what i hope to be someday millions of patients for my first 26 years you know the first 26 years it's it's business it's a grind it it was good for myself my family but there's no it doesn't compare to the impact that we're having right now and, you know, we have updates from OWP and Roe every other month. And, you know, we get people on Zoom coming to Roe meetings from all over the world talking about uh, what we're doing and the impact we're having. 
you know, it just brings you so much joy. Wow. That is truly incredible. That is so, so awesome. I'm just curious if this is something that y'all can say. Um, so obviously you've been addressing epilepsy. Do you know what's next on your kind of list to provide treatments for? Yeah. And, and our, our niche in, in the U.S. market for sales is neuroscience. So it's psychiatry and neurology. So wow. it would be uh, um, right now our, our main drugs are in epilepsy, but we will have schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety, drugs in that, in that vein. Uh, we've done a couple projects on education for uh, mental health disorders. And uh, um, I would say that's the area that will probably grow into in addition to uh, kind of being a stalwart for epilepsy around the world. Awesome. Cool. And for ROW, does this uh, kind of similar? Like it'll, it'll, uh, like you said, it's kind of a draft, right? So as that segment begins to grow, does ROW still have similar kind of growth mission, impact mission around those drugs? Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the really compelling thing about this model is that, um, as OWP grows, Rogue grows also. And, and I think we also see it as a, as a pipeline for not just the, the medications and the uh, funding that OWP can provide, but uh, what else could we do if we were to maximize that network and the model and the system that we've created to already reach, you know, over 35 countries, partnering with other uh, organizations that could provide uh, similar support and see see Roe as the conduit for them doing good. I think that then you look at um, scale to the you know to the levels that we hadn't probably even thought about previously. So yeah, it's exciting to see uh, and to think about what could be possible in the future. Yeah, and our our hope is that uh, obviously all the expenses for the employees associated with Roe is covered by OWP. So. When you look at our 990 report for the not-for-profit, I mean, honestly, if people donated and our, we know that the primary engine for ROW will always be OWP, but there are people that donate and there's going to be more and more people that donate small amounts and some large amounts because they're like, oh, wow, these guys are really getting things done in epilepsy around the world. And when they make a donation, there's no admin fee for you know the infrastructure and most times you make a donation you know there is because you have to pay people salaries and you know and so forth so that's one thing nice about this is that um, owp covers that so when people donate literally they can donate the amount for a project and the project will get done and they're not going to have to up upcharge it for administration which is normal and customary with not-for-profits because people need to get paid but that's one of the positives about uh, the OB, OWP, ROW model is that um, that is covered through OWP. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And that definitely is one of the struggles, I think, as nonprofits especially start to scale up is not 100% of the donated revenue can go to the cause that you're hoping to donate to. So that's really great that you've addressed it that way. Yeah, so awesome. Well, Scott, Jeremy, this has been such an enlightening and fascinating conversation and also inspiring. It's just really, really great to hear about the fantastic work that y'all are doing. Um, so in closing, tell us, you know, where our audience can purchase this book and how they can, you know, support the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, we have a website up, uh, tandemhybrid.co. So it's tandemhybrid.co. You can go there and then you can find out uh, multiple places that you can purchase the book. Um, 
And uh, yeah, we'd love to love to uh, hear from folks who who do read it or have questions about it. Scott and I are willing to you know jump on a Zoom call or to a class or speak at events, things like that. Um, but we really hope that it's useful for uh, not just for students in the education market, but for practitioners and, and folks who are in the Social Enterprise Alliance network who are who have maybe started uh, their social enterprise or are thinking about structure or may want to restructure in the future. We'd be happy to to uh, be a resource. That's so awesome. And for any SCA members, also, uh, Jeremy and Scott both spoke at us at our summit in 2022. And so if you uh, go to your member dashboard and check out the summit videos tab, you'll see a really awesome session that they did with Melissa CB. So that's another resource available to SCA members. Yeah, that was a fun session. Melissa's great too. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Well, guys, thanks again for your work. And yeah, um, we look forward to checking back in in, the, in a year or two and seeing where you, where you guys are having impact next. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for all the work you both do with Social Enterprise Alliance. I know it, it impacts a lot of uh, people who are trying to do this work. So we're just glad to be part of the network and appreciate all that you're doing. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Have a great day. Bye.